Have you heard some of the great insights from guests on Gangry the Podcast? Insights like... I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. I always ask myself with yeah, stories, and, and I, I had the same going question. through the Bokov's archives. It has a question mark in my Imagine head I'm on your shoulder and that you're wearing a GoPro. Here is uh, carefully and meticulously. Every single piece about the whole Bundy story was just so interesting. It was really weird one to write because every time I tried to outline... The story became a viral sensation, right? Like, it was the story. You cannot, you cannot do these stories or how we, uh, how we understand the world. They're how we share our experiences. Believe it or not, Gangry the Podcast is now in its ninth year. In all that time, the best narrative journalists have told us how they report and write their stories. You can still listen to every single episode. They're on our website, along with links to all of the stories and books that we've talked about. You can find it all at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. In this episode, I talk with Elon Green. Green is the author of Last Call, a true story of love, lust, and murder in queer New York. The book was published by Celadon Books earlier this month. It's basically about the stories of uh, men who were picked up in piano bars in New York City in the early 90s. They were presumed to be gay um, and their bodies were left outside of the city, uh, sometimes dismembered in garbage bags. And the book is about their lives, but it's also about the investigations into the deaths. Green did a massive amount of reporting in order to write this book. He gathered trial transcripts, massive amounts of police files, and documents handed over by friends and family members. And of course, and most valuable, I think, primary interviews. Um, These didn't all end up in the book, but I talked to 160 people. Um, many of them multiple times, I'm sure, to their utter exhaustion. Because, you know, when I would interview detectives, um, I would often re-interview them with each successive chapter. You know, they, they were very patient with me. Green has written for the New York Times Magazine, The All, and New York. He's been anthologized in Unspeakable Acts, which was edited by Sarah Weinman. Green has also been an editor at Longform since 2011. In 2013 and 2014, he did annotation interviews with some of the best literary journalists of all time, including reporters like Tom Wolfe, Mike Sager, John Jeremiah Sullivan, and Gay Talese. He did those for Neiman Storyboard. As usual, I've linked to everything we talk about on the show. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Elon, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. Uh, I'm really excited to talk with you, um, specifically about your book, uh, which just came out uh, just about three weeks ago. 
Last Call, a, a true oh. story of love, lust, and murder in queer New York was published by Celadon Books. Uh, went on sale on March 9th. Um, can you can you tell me a little bit about the book? Sure. It's basically about the stories of uh, men who were picked up in piano bars in New York City in the early 90s. They were presumed to be gay um, and their bodies were left outside of the city, uh, sometimes dismembered in garbage bags. And the book is about their lives, but it's also about the investigations into the deaths um, set against, you know, the political backdrop and the AIDS epidemic. You know, I'm an incredibly slow reader, but I completely devoured your book in barely two days. Uh, And one thing that I, I think kept me uh, going through it and that I couldn't get over as I was reading was how I had never heard about any of this before. Yeah, I mean, you're not alone in, in the entire, uh, you know, two or three years of of pretty intensive reporting for the book. I only met a single person not directly connected to the case who was familiar with the case. Uh, and I just happened to meet him because I was drinking at Marie's Crisis down in the village. And I was talking to the bartender about the book. And the man next to me said, oh, you know, I know about this because it, it, it changed the way I, you know, conducted myself. And it changed my dating life. And he was, he was the anomaly. How did you learn about it? Um, you know pretty accidentally, uh, just a Google search, uh, led me to, uh, you know, an October, 1994 edition of the advocate and buried like three or four pages into a story about, uh, anti-queer violence was, uh, you know, a few paragraphs about this case, which at the time hadn't been solved. What was the Google search? What was, and, and why, obviously, why, why were, were you doing a Google search on, on that? I have no idea what the Google search was. <laughs> I was sort of, um, you know, sort of passively looking for a book idea because I had just come back from uh, San Francisco to see if I could expand an older story uh, about some murders in San Francisco into a book. And I concluded that I couldn't, but I very much wanted to, you know, keep researching in the same vein uh, because I really was intrigued, uh, if not obsessed, with the issues um, brought forth uh, by these unsolved cases, you know, meaning the, the politics and the media coverage and the neglected victims. So what about this actually grabbed your attention and made you, made you start to think, well, maybe, so you're looking for a book, so maybe this, this could be it. Well, I mean, it was really the, the, the lives of the men, um, you know, that's what grabbed me, but what convinced me that it could be a book as opposed to just a feature, uh, was when I had gotten a hold of some of the trial transcripts. And of all things, I was reading um, the testimony of a sanitation worker, and he was recounting for the jury uh, 
his day, which was really mundane uh, until it wasn't when he, you know, discovered some body parts in New Jersey. And what made me think it was a book is that the testimony was so granular and so sort of quietly dramatic that I could see it. And I thought, well, that's, that's a scene, you know? And the dirty secret of journalism is you don't really need scenes in features, but if you don't have scenes, you can't write a book. So uh, you, you mentioned earlier that you do focus um, uh, a lot on the men who were killed and telling, telling their stories. Why, why, why did you want to focus on that? Because in focusing on them, not only could I tell the stories of, 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 of their lives, um, which I think you have to do if you want to write um, true crime or anything that is moral and worth doing, but in writing about their lives, it also just allowed me to write about what was happening around them, mm -hmm. uh, not just literally in the, you know, the locations and the spaces, but also, you know, the constraints that they were under uh, politically, socially, you know, it, it allowed me to write about the world around them. But if I hadn't written about them and had them at the center, it would have been very difficult to do everything else. One thing that I couldn't stop thinking about as I was reading the book uh, is the sheer volume of reporting that, that you had to have done. Can you tell me about how uh, all the ways that you gathered information and, and that allowed you to tell the story? I mean, you know, first and foremost, those trial transcripts uh, were invaluable. They provided the, you know, the spine of, of the story, or at least the story as I originally understood it and, you know, allowed me to write the proposal. Um, but there was also eventually um, police files that were given to me, uh, binders that were prepared for the murder trial, um, documents handed over by friends and family that were related to the story. And of course, and most valuable, I think, pri primary interviews. Um, these didn't all end up in the book, but I talked to 160 people, um, many of them multiple times, I'm sure to their utter exhaustion, because, you know, when I would interview detectives, um, I would often re-interview them with each successive chapter and oftentimes ask them the same question. You know, I would I talked to them a lot during the proposal period, but then when I got to their part, a, a part of the book that they played a role in, I'd re-interview them, and um, you know they they were very patient with me. Did you um, did you ever have to explain to them why you were going to ask the same questions? No, I mean, you know, they're detectives; they've asked a lot of questions of people before. Um, often in many different ways. So that I think was one part of the process they absolutely did not have any confusion about. Um, you know, oftentimes they wondered why I was trying so hard. 
they, they felt that like my you know insistence on getting every little detail right was you know not necessarily warranted but i plowed ahead when you approach the families because you interviewed some of the family members of the men who who were killed um what what was that like well um sometimes they just outright refused which i certainly understood um you know no matter what my intentions were to them, um, I was just reopening an old wound. And I get that because on some level, that's exactly what I'm doing. Um, and then some family members were willing to talk to me uh, to varying degrees. Um, and I was very, very lucky to, to have that. And, uh, and then I, I did talk to one relative of the murderer um and it was by far the most contentious conversation i had uh during the entire book writing period you tried to get in touch with the murderer as well is that correct yes although i have to say that was mostly out of due diligence i don't even know if i would have wanted him to agree to an interview because of how that would have ultimately shaped the book. Once you, uh, once you had done, um, all of this, re oh, actually, I want to take a step back. Um, you, uh, in terms of the trial transcripts, was that the first thing you reached out to get when you started thinking, I want to do something on this? Well, once I had, you know, read a few stories and, and realized how interesting it was, yeah, that was my first stop. I, um, I, I called uh, the courthouse and they said, you know, we don't have the transcripts. The, uh, the court stenographer has them and she's retired and living in Utah. So I called her and she charged me thousands and thousands of dollars for just like a fraction of the trial and luckily eventually i got everything including an unredacted version of wadir from the prosecutor once you so once you had done all this reporting um how do you organize it when you sit down to write um a lot of the book derives from what was probably a 30 page uh, just timeline of events as I understood them that I would keep adding to. And um, it was sequential. Uh, but as far as the structure of the book, I owe that almost entirely to Carrie Fry. Uh, she used to be the editor of The All. Mm -hmm. She is now a an extraordinary um, editor for hire uh but mine was the first book proposal she worked on i i dumped what must have been 50 or 60 pages of uh notes on her and she came back with a book structure was was that the first book proposal you'd written yes what was that process like i i say as somebody who i've you know i've written plenty of them and they've not amounted to anything so I mean, it was really interesting just because, 
you know, a book proposal is not just a sample chapter. You're, you're taking into account the commercial prospects for the book. And so you have to think about it, not just through your eyes, but the eyes of the publisher. And that's, it's kind of a fascinating exercise. You mentioned the structure of the book and, and you credited um, your editor on that, right? What was her, I mean, how did she, I, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm trying to ask there because it was just, it was really well done, right? We get the men right up front, right? We, we learn about who they all are and then it kind of continues on. Um, how, do you, how did she come up with that? I'm curious. Good question. I never asked. Uh, I was merely just in awe of what she had come up with. But, you know, once I started working on it, it was pretty clear that this was the right way to do it. Um, and that, you know, with one or two exceptions, you know, the book is chronological. What was the biggest challenge for you, um, both in the reporting and the writing? Um, the re biggest reporting and writing ch challenge was uh, chapter five, which was about Anthony Marrero, uh, who was a sex worker. And he was um, the third victim, 1993. And that was a tremendous challenge um, because I had so little biographical detail to work with and the biographical details uh, are what drove the other chapters uh, about the victims. Mm -hmm. And so I had to figure out a way around it, you know, in some sleight of hand. And so I had to shift the emphasis to the milieu of male sex work in New York. Mm -hmm. And that became, um, the story. Uh, but also, this was one of these cases where the detectives were extremely helpful in recounting their interactions with the family members. Um, you know, one, one of the reasons or the primary reason I talked to the, to the detectives so often, it wasn't for their perspective, it was for their recollections of the men and what they learned about them so that I could get more information about them. I was essentially pumping them for sources. Um, you know, they don't drive the book. I think you said you talked to 160 people, you got trial transcripts, you got um, uh, police reports, uh, all that type of stuff. How much time did you, did this take you to actually do all of the reporting? And then how much time did it take you to sit down and do the writing? Um, well, that's one and the same. I never stopped doing reporting. I never understand people who say that they do the reporting for the first half and then they do the writing for the second half. It never worked like that to me. Uh, I, I was reporting up till the very last day. Um, from the time I signed the book deal, you know, got the book deal, which was the very day I began writing the book to when I turned it in. It was about 18 months. Wow. I can't even imagine how you did that much reporting in 18 months. It's because I had done an extraordinary amount of reporting for the proposal. I had interviewed 45 people just for the proposal because oftentimes book proposals are based on 
previously published works, and this one was not. Did you ever did you ever think that you would try to do a like a, get a, a magazine piece on this and then go the book route, or did you just you wanted to dive right in on 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 the book idea? Um, actually, I considered it, and I even uh, had lunch one, once with um, Megan Greenwell back when she was at Esquire, and uh, I told her I was thinking about it. And then I ran this by my friend David Grant, who told me that was stupid and that I should save everything for the proposal. Yeah, I mean, he's a good person to get advice from on something like this. Yes. <laughs> um, I was going to, uh, you, you you mentioned that you're reporting and writing all at the same time, um, which uh, you're right. I mean, some people say, no, I'll report and then I'm not going to write anything until I'm done with my reporting and, and they'll do a little bit of reporting here and there. But like when you're working on a project like this, what is your, what's a typical day like? There is no typical day. I mean, I think that people who manage to write every day, I mean, congrats to them. I don't know how that works. Um, you know, for me, the writing was entirely driven by the reporting. So if that day I couldn't get the information I needed, then I probably wasn't going to be doing any writing because I was also writing the book in sequence. I wasn't skipping around. And um, so, so the reporting was my way forward. And, um, you know, one of the reasons that the reporting never stopped is because when you're writing something, whether it's a book or a story, the more writing you do, the more you see the holes in your story and you have questions. So like, for example, um, when I was writing a chapter about uh, a New York Law Journal uh, typesetter, um, you know, Michael Sakara, who was murdered in 1993, I realized I don't know what he did as a typesetter. And so I got a hold of this guy who had consulted on the movie uh, the Post, uh, the Steven Spielberg movie, and he took a couple of hours to walk me through what Michael would have done for a living. Like, you know, you're, you have to allow yourself to, to take these digressions to flesh, it could, because it fleshes out the character. Yeah, I, I liked um, Michael. Yeah, he was, I, I don't know, he was one of the, 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 the men that I connected with, I think maybe because he was from Ohio, right? I mean, literally like 50 miles from, from where I grew up. Well, yeah, know, but, but also I should say one of the reasons he connects with people is I had the most information on him. So he comes off, he's as, as um, you know, well-rounded. You also, though, did give context on the places that are involved in this too, right? So you 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 don't just say he's from Ohio, but you actually are able to go into like really great depth in terms of um, showing you know the the early family life and, and where he lived and and all that type of stuff, right? I mean, that's 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 all character building. Yeah, but I mean, it was also to just satisfy my own curiosity because my overarching question was. How did these guys end up in New York at, at, at you know any given time? And you have to figure out where they come from. And you know, especially once I started working on the Boston chapter, I became very conscious of how little of queer life had actually been documented and how scattered 
the scholarship was when it existed. So I realized I had this opportunity, if not an obligation, to document it any way I could. Um, my understanding is that until this book came out, there was not a, a single sentence published about queer life in Youngstown, Ohio. I don't say that to pat myself on the back. I say that just to talk about the lack of scholarship that's been done. I mean, it's appalling. Well, and, and the appalling nature too, right? So much of this book shows how kind of horrible of a society we we were and still are, I think, to the queer community. Um, yeah. I imagine you had a pretty good idea of, of what life was like back then, I'm guessing. Maybe not. But what was there anything that really just not, I don't want to say surprised you, but just really kind of made your skin crawl about how we've treated this entire community of people? So, I mean, I, you know, I was 12, 13, you know, when the, the, the events uh, in question happened. And I certainly remember, uh, you know, those years of the AIDS epidemic. Uh, I remember learning about Ryan White in school. And I remember, you know, the misinformation uh, about toilet seats, that kind of thing. Um, but certainly in reporting out this book, it was, I was very aware of how what I remembered was actually much, much, much worse in ways that I didn't know and, and couldn't have known at, you know, 12 or 13. I've been talking with Elon Green about his new book, Last Call, a true story of love, lust, and murder in queer New York. The book is now available. We're going to take a short break. I'll be back in one minute with more from Elon. Stay with us. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism and Sports Media programs at Fairfield University. Digital journalism is designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to succeed in today's quickly changing media world. Students take courses in everything from big data storytelling to podcasting to narrative journalism and more. Sports media is a new major that prepares students to work anywhere sports related content is produced. Students take courses in journalism and broadcast communication. They can also take courses in public relations, film and more. To learn more about the digital journalism and sports media programs, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm talking with Elon Green about his new book, Last Call, A True Story of Love, Lust, and Murder in Queer New York. What has um, attracted you in general to, to, to true crime writing? nothing um if i've written any true crime it's not it's it's by accident um i'm attracted to stories i'm attracted to people um and that's it is there i mean because you have been anthologized in a true crime 
uh, anthology, right? And and this book, I guess it's if I think that's one of the categories on Amazon. It's just there's conflict, right? And there's characters and there's people who've been impacted and had you know their lives changed, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly right. Um, but so much of the genre is crap, and you know when the whole time I was working on this book to me, I was writing a work of history and the true crimeness of it was just a, a, a catalyst and allowing me to, you know, it allowed me to, to write the history and to write about their lives. Um, true crime that is focused on the crime is pretty worthless. Right. And this is focused on the people, which is, I think, what makes it so impactful. Writing is, is so often considered a, like a solitary endeavor. Um, but you mentioned in the acknowledgments uh, of your book, so many amazing writers um, who helped you, uh, you know, and I, you know, I'm just going to read off some of the names of the people who um, I know I read all the time. And, you know, Paige Williams, uh, Pamela Koloff, Jason Fogoni. Eva Holland, David Grant, Sarah Weinman. Um, I mean, I could go on and on. How did they help you on, on your first book, the various ways they helped you? I mean, David Grant did like line edits on the first five chapters or so. Uh, he taught me how to sort of space out biographical information and ensure that when I was introducing that information, it was, you know, basically tied to the, in, the police investigation. And I wasn't just dropping it in the chapters indiscriminately. Um, Pam uh, Koloff uh, edited and fact-checked uh, the forensic chapter. Um, you know, friends like Liz Lenz and Sarah Weinman read everything uh, multiple times. Um, you know, I, I had, uh, I wanted people from certain cities to, uh, review their, those chapters to make sure that I didn't come off like, uh, a carpetbagger. So, uh, Vince Guerreri, uh, a journalist from Ohio, uh, read the Youngstown chapter and Duncan Black, uh, read the chapter in, on Philly, um, you know, writing a book is just, uh, you're making yourself aware of how little you actually know. And it's really stupid to me to not take advantage of other people's knowledge if they're willing to help you. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted as many eyeballs on this as possible. I feel like that's why I do this podcast is that way I get to talk to people about how they do the awesome stuff that they do. And then I'm learning from them. So did you learn? I mean, you, did you take away anything that when you do another book, you're going to be like, I, I remember when, when David Grant said this, and now you're able to kind of put it into action. Sure. Because, you know, I all, I already, you know, I took those lessons in the book and, and the subsequent chapters, but you know, it's also bled into subsequent writing. So, you know, once you, once you learn those lessons, uh, they're hard to forget. Um, 
you know, I just saw uh, on Twitter uh, a few days ago when Judy Bloom uh, tweeted a picture of herself holding your book. Um, and I don't know about you, but the the fourth grader in me, uh, you know, who was reading Tales of the Fourth Grade Nothing. And if I grew up and I saw her holding my book, I don't know that I could survive the sheer joy. <laughs> yeah, Ms. Bloom has uh, been a lovely person. Uh, presence in my life for some years uh mostly on twitter and once off twitter and uh i sent her an advanced reader copy like i don't know six or seven months ago and then forgot about it and uh i think i, I was as shocked as anybody else when when she did that yeah that was that was pretty amazing um well, let's shift uh let's shift um focus a little bit. I, I, I saw that you um, just had a piece in the appeal earlier this month. Uh, can you tell me what that piece is about? Yeah, it's about the life and career of Burnett Joshua Johnson. She was uh, the first black woman on the Louisiana Supreme Court, and then subsequently the first black woman to be the chief justice of the court. Did you, um, I'm assuming you were able to work on that once the book was done. I know because it takes a, a while for a book to make its way into print, but were you weren't double like working on both at the same time, were you? No, no, no. I, I started working on that in, I want to say October of last year. And uh, that's all I was working on. Do you, when you're, when you're writing and, and reporting, do you, um, are you ever working on one, more than one piece at a time? Rarely. I'm like, I'm such a bad freelancer. <laughs> I do not have the capacity to multitask. Uh, do you think that gives you better focus then on the piece that you are working on? I don't know that it gives me better focus, but it gives me the focus I need. I, I, I um, remember one piece that you did um, several years ago, I think almost eight years ago now, for Neiman Storyboard, uh, when you did the annotation uh, with Gay Talese on Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. Um, I, what was that like? I would just love to know what, what, what that experience was like. I mean, you know, I've had some sort of out-of-body experiences in in my career and you know that certainly was one of them it was uh you know i uh, you know spent you know two days with him uh at his house and you know i spent a lot of that time like glancing at the tape recorder to make sure that it was functioning because i couldn't believe the stuff he was saying um you know so uh so energetically it was, uh, it was, it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful experience. Um, I don't know if that particular annotation, uh, you know, so a lot of those annotations were basically my journalism school. I didn't go to J school and I got fired by my college paper. Uh, but the annotations really taught me how to report and to write, um, the Talese one was maybe an exception. Yeah. What do you mean? Maybe, maybe an exception. I mean, you know, first of all, you know, Talese takes a lot of notes. I don't take any notes. And 
I certainly am not going to be taking notes on uh, shirt boards. Um, <laughs> I think that Talisa's methods have not aged well. And, um, you know, I don't think that they're, a, I think that they are, I think he wrote some and reported some extraordinary stuff, but I just would not use them um, as a guide. I remember, I remember, I think it's in, in that, that annotation where he talks about um, working with the source to, to craft the perfect quote. That's right. He got into some trouble for that. And, um, you know, I always, you know, run quotes by my sources. And if they misspoke or if they got something wrong, they have the opportunity to correct it. But they don't get to massage quotes. So you went to you went to college. You didn't study journalism. Did you know you wanted to get into journalism when you when you went to college? No, because I didn't. <laughs> uh, I wanted to go into film. I studied film. What drew you uh, to doing journalism then? I mean, nothing. I ended up at the uh, New York Observer in 2002, uh, but I was on the business side. I was writing what they called advertorials at the time, um, which is now called native advertising. Uh, and I was writing it for, you know, advertisers like BMW and Sephora and, uh, you know, lots of businesses on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And then after about a year of doing that, um, the editor of the paper, Peter Kaplan, his assistant had gone on vacation and realized that she did not want to be his assistant when she came back. So he offered me the job. And, uh, and I jumped at it because the newsroom of the observer at that time was quite remarkable. I have to ask, cause I'm the advisor of a student newspaper here at Fairfield university. What, how did you get fired from the student newspaper? Oh, it's not a fun story. Uh, <laughs> and I will not be telling it. Oh, uh, you'll leave, uh, everybody wanting to know. Um, well, I'm glad you did make the move to journalism because it led to uh, your book, Last Call, A True Story of Love, Lust, and Murder in Queer New York, published by Celadon Books. It went on sale on March 9th, and it's available everywhere, and it's getting great great feedback, at least to what I'm seeing uh, on social media and everything. Elon, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I've been talking with Elon Green. Green is the author of Last Call, a true story of love, lust, and murder in queer New York. The book was published by Celadon Books earlier this month. As usual, I've linked to everything we talk about on the show. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. 
That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the Integrated Media Labs at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the digital journalism and sports media programs, as well as the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.